Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Out of thankfulness to God for giving us his word, I will conclude the reading by saying, this is the word of the Lord, and invite you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. Our scripture for today comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never come with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles, as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we may, might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out and displeased God, and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measures of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, thank you, Anna. You guys can grab a seat. Good morning. It is good to be with you today. I know summer has like fully set in, right? I kind of feel that reality. So thanks for uh, fighting to show up and being here this morning. Haven't had a chance to meet you. My name is Ian. I have the privilege of being uh, one of the pastors here at the King's Church and excited today to open up God's word for us. And today we've come to a passage in our summer sermon series through First and Second Thessalonians that is all about Paul's gospel ministry toward the Thessalonians. And while his words here have a bigger implication than just for pastors, it is a passage about the heart of pastoral ministry. See, more than anywhere else in the scriptures, I would argue, Paul here is laying bare not just the work of gospel ministry, what goes into this as far as activities, but instead he is expressing the very heart and soul of the work of gospel ministry. I mean, it's hard if we really took the words that he's saying here seriously not to be moved by what he is saying. I know as a pastor, I was as I jumped in this week. But if I could pull back the curtain for just a moment and be honest with you, this is kind of a difficult passage to preach in this context. 
And there's a few reasons why. First of all, anytime you preach about pastors and pastoral ministry, it can feel a bit self-serving, okay? So I just want to acknowledge up top, I'm not looking for your pity, okay? I'm not looking for any sort of uh, woe is me type sermon here, okay? I love my job. I love pastoring this church. God has been immensely kind and gracious to us. Uh, I'm not looking to go anywhere. I love what I do, okay? So as we walk into the hardships of ministry, don't hear me wrongly, I love getting to pastor this church. But I say all of that while also acknowledging it's a weird and challenging time to be a pastor. I don't know if you've sensed that, but it's a weird time. The numbers are actually quite concerning about pastoral health over the past 18 months with the confluence of all that is going on in our world happening at once. So a study was just recently uh, reported that 30% of pastors have given serious consideration to not just leaving their current ministry job, but quitting full-time vocational ministry altogether. Almost one-third of pastors right now. I was having a hard time believing that until I started talking to some of my friends, my dear friends who are in pastoral ministry, and it turns out that that number is exactly right. It is hard right now. There are all sorts of divisions and hardships and arguments about anything and everything to try to maintain the unity of the church is quite difficult, and it is a challenging season. Some church plants in our networks are, quite frankly, not making it. They're closing down for all sorts of different reasons. And did you know that only one in ten pastors will retire as a pastor in some form? That's a sobering reality, isn't it? I think there's a weight that I have felt this week as I think about my own ministry, but certainly the ministry of my friends that are struggling and just the ministry that it requires, what ministry requires right now in this season. And so I want us to feel the weight of that a little bit as we step into this passage. Now, I tell you all of that to remind you, number one, to pray for your pastors. I mean, seriously, pray for your pastors. We need it, okay? But secondly, this reality is a reminder that we as a church body need to know what God's word says about pastoral ministry and about gospel ministry in general. You see, if we were not a church that walked kind of expositionally through books of the Bible, I would be very tempted to skip this passage. I really don't want to preach it. It's a little awkward. Again, it feels self-serving. It's kind of a weird in and out of the hardships of ministry. But I think it's important that the church as a whole knows what God's word says about this issue. So I think it's important for us to have this discussion together today because if we're going to have a healthy church, we need healthy pastors. And healthy pastors are defined as healthy by the word of God, not by what we feel. Okay, and then furthermore, we are all ministers of the gospel in some sense. Listen, if even in this room, if you don't have any aspiration to be a pastor or have gifts or abilities in that realm, we are all called in the body of Christ to minister to one another. So the heart of what Paul is saying here applies to the heart of our relationship together in the body of Christ. And then we did just nominate elder candidates here at the King's Church last Sunday for the first time since we launched, and so this is a timely word and reminder for what it is we are nominating these men to do and the type of men we are looking for in this role. So as we jump into the passage and all the complexities of that, here is our simple main idea today. Okay, here's what I believe Paul is leading us to see in this passage. Faithful gospel ministry is a stewardship of the Word of God and a commitment to the people of God. Faithful gospel ministry is a stewardship of the word of God and a commitment to the people of God. Before we jump in, let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to help our time in his word. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, we come before you in need of a reminder of the good news of the gospel and in need of instruction today of what your word says about ministry, about what it means to be a minister of the gospel 
to one another. So Lord, I pray as we seek to submit ourselves to your word that you would remind us, that you would stir us up by way of exhortation to treasure what your word says and then also to apply it to our lives and to our church community. Father, we know that uh, without your help, we will not be able to uh, even come close to what this passage talks about. So Holy Spirit, may you give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to respond and treasure the good news of Jesus today. Help us land in a place of unity and understanding, and may you be magnified in our time together today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as we walk through these 16 verses in 1 Thessalonians 2, I want to walk through three movements. Okay, the first is the motivation for ministry. The second is the manner of ministry. And then third, the message of ministry. So a triple-double alliteration. The Spirit was moving mightily in my sermon prep this week, so you know it's going to be a good one. So buckle up. All right, let's begin with the motivation for ministry. These 16 verses today are looking at Paul's time when he was present with the Thessalonians. And it's clear here that Paul is a bit on the defensive, if you sense that from the scripture reading. It seems that because Paul had to make such an abrupt and quick exit from this church that he had helped plant in Thessalonica, some people began to accuse him of having bad motives. More than that, they actually made accusations that Paul was in this business for shady and sinful reasons. We must remember that false teachers were commonplace in the first century just like they are today. But they were especially common among those who had a traveling ministry. They would come into a place, they would preach the gospel, but then they would exert some improper influence or engage in some sinful activity, and then they would go on and do that in the next place. So Paul, in the face of those accusations, wants to clear his name. So he reminds them, church in the Thessalonians, when I was with you, remember that I did not do a few things. Go back to verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we have boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Paul begins by reminding them, listen, I was not deterred by suffering and conflict. In fact, my message in my ministry is not dependent upon circumstances being favorable. Paul was not only in it when times were good. He reminds them, listen, right before I came to you, I was in Philippi. Remember what happened in Philippi? Paul and Silas, they were stripped naked. They were beaten. They were thrown into a prison, all without a fair trial or hearing, all because they were just preaching the gospel. Then they depart from Philippi. They show up in Thessalonica only to encounter an angry mob incited by the Jewish leaders. Remember that wicked men of the rabble from last week who use violence intimidation, and extortion to drive them out. But here's the thing, Paul's ministry was always marked by this. This was par for the course. He is not running from it. His call was to be a minister of the gospel in the midst of much conflict. He's not deterred by that reality. He reminds them that is what ministry is always like. And then secondly, in verse 3, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we... Well, let me hold off on that. Sorry. Verse 3. i got to follow my instructions, okay? Our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Paul's saying, listen, I'm not acting with impure motives. That word impure probably implies sexual impurity. 
You see, one of the marks of false teachers in every age is that they abuse and use their position of power for lustful intent. And because in Acts 17, it says that not a few of the leading women in Thessalonica were persuaded of the truth of the gospel, some people looked at that and went, why are all these women following Paul? This is kind of weird. Maybe there's something shady going on. But Paul says, no, no, there's nothing impure in my motives. He's also clear that he is not trying to trick or deceive them in any way. He's not teaching error. He's not trying to bait and switch them. He is giving them the truth of the gospel. His motives and his actions were pure. But then thirdly, skip down to verse 5. It says, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Paul says, I did not come seeking glory from man. He was not concerned with flattering the right people to gain a reputation and standing in this city. He was not seeking the glory that comes from other people. Nor was he after money. He did not come with a pretext for greed. That word pretext means a cloak. He did not come and use his ministry to conceal some secretive desire to all of a sudden become wealthy. He's actually going to remind them in a few verses, I did not ask for any money from you. I actually worked hard so that it would not be a burden or a stumbling block to the gospel. Now, Paul says elsewhere, we have rights as apostles to demand that. In fact, it's wise, I think, for a church to pay their pastor. Right? Again, not being self-serving. Serves you well and serves me well to free up my time to do that. But Paul says, when I came to you, I didn't want to be a stumbling block. I didn't even take anything from you. How could I be after greed? See, Paul is writing to this church, and he is saying, my conscience is clean and my motives are pure. So how did he get to that place where that was his reality? How could he truly have that kind of witness? Well, the power for that comes in that verse I tried to read a minute ago. We're going to go back to it, verse 4. Look at verse 4. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. Paul had pure motivations. His conscience was clean because at the end of the day, he knew that he was merely a steward of what ultimately belongs to God. This is God's thing. And he has been approved by God and then entrusted, that's that language of stewardship, entrusted with the gospel. His motivations were pure because he embraced this posture. You see, Paul had an encounter with the master. He had an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus in Acts 9 that required this response from him. He could never take credit for this. He could not produce in his own flesh the power of the gospel that had taken root in this city. Now, this posture of a steward, I think, is both liberating and sobering at the same time. Not just for ministers of the gospel, but for every Christian. This is both liberating and sobering. Here's why it's liberating. Do you feel how freed up Paul is? It's incredibly compelling. I mean, he is being challenged. His reputation is being drugged through the mud. I mean, he's being accused of some crazy sinful things. If you and I were accused of that, how would we respond? How dare that person say that, right? Let me make sure I clear my name immediately. But you know what Paul does? You know how he defends himself? He appeals in these 16 verses to God 14 times. 
When he goes to defend himself, he actually doesn't put the onus on him. He puts it all on the Lord. He has a big vision of the Lord's work in this. He doesn't have to keep saying, I and me, and you know how I am. No, he appeals to God. See, Paul has been liberated from all of this because he knows deep down that he has been approved by God. Now, that's a powerful reality, isn't it? Don't you want that kind of freedom? Paul truly lived for and sought to please an audience of one, which is something so rare in gospel ministry and something so rare in our lives in general. I mean, you know this firsthand. Someone could give you hundreds of words of affirmation. They could tell you how great of a job you're doing and whatever it is you're doing. They could tell you how much they appreciate you and love you. And one word of criticism comes and what do you focus on? That criticism, right? We hate that. We keep playing that back in our mind over and over again. We know that there is a gripping power in that. And Paul is pointing us to the secret of liberation. Over in 1 Corinthians 4, he has this incredibly powerful kind of parallel passage. He says, It is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself For I am not aware of anything against myself, and I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Now, don't miss what Paul's doing there. He's basically saying, I don't really care what you think about me. I don't really care what they think about me. I don't even care what I think about myself. That's freedom, isn't it? Paul has stepped out of the courtroom of human approval, which is just a treadmill that never will be enough. And he says, you know what? The Lord judges me, which ought to be a terrifying reality. Shouldn't it? I mean, the Lord is the one who truly can judge you. He knows everything, not just what you've done in public or what other people can see, but he knows the thoughts and intentions of your heart. Paul says, the Lord judges me with ought to terrify us, except that the gospel, if it is true, tells us that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul was gripped by that message. He had an encounter with the grace of God where he stepped out of the courtroom altogether. He didn't care what they thought. He didn't care why he judged himself. The Lord has looked at him and in Jesus Christ, in his scandalous free offer of grace, said there's no condemnation. You feel the freedom of that? Do you want that freedom? You're invited to step out of the courtroom too. Paul says, I'm not after that. I'm after the approval of the Lord and I already have it in Christ. There's a liberation to that. But at the same time, it's sobering. Because being a steward means you're being entrusted with what belongs to another. Which means there ought to be special care and attention given to whatever that thing is you've been entrusted with. It's not yours after all. And the reality is that ministers of the gospel, they've been entrusted to care for the most valuable and precious thing in the entire universe. There ought to be a weight with that. As good stewards, we seek to handle it with care. We give it special attention. We're not haphazard with the good news of the gospel. You see, this invites all of us, especially ministers of the gospel, but all of us to a posture of humble confidence. Humble confidence. Paul had boldness. He had confidence to proclaim the good news of the gospel in the midst of affliction because he knew there was power in it. But he knew that power was not in himself, so therefore he was humble. He was humble. Handle it with care. We are stewards of what is ultimately God's thing. That is his motivation for ministry. But then he moves to his 
manner of ministry. Secondly, he gives us two pictures to showcase this manner. Let's look at verse 7. He says, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Paul's first picture that he gives about his manner of ministry in Thessalonica is of a mother. Now, the pastor or minister as mother, I think, is rarely talked about, but it's such an important picture of the manner of ministry. I love what Jared Wilson says in his excellent book on pastoral ministry. He says, a different set of traits is needed for pastors than for the business world's management culture. Paul writes, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. This is not exactly the pastoral image that is most popular today. In an age when machismo and catalytic visionary life coaching dominate the evangelical leadership ranks, the ministerial role of a breastfeeding mom is alien. There is a patience, a parental affection, a tender giving of oneself that scripture envisions for the pastor's leadership role. Every targeted ad that my computer and my phone wants to show me because they know that I'm a pastor and they know everything about me, basically, uh, it has to do with catalytic, visionary life coaching. I mean, it's unreal. I've never seen a conference or an ad about the pastor as mother, though. I mean, this is something foreign to us, isn't it? But it's such an important picture. This is meant to reveal two things about the manner of gospel ministry. The first is that Ministry is an overflow of love. It's an overflow of love. Paul says he is affectionately desirous of the Thessalonians. It's almost like he made up a word in the Greek. It's the only place it shows up. It's used like two other places in human history. He says, I care about you so deeply. I'm affectionately desirous of you that he and his apostolic group, they didn't want to just drop in and give them knowledge. He didn't just show up in Thessalonica and give them a killer sermon about Jesus and then walk away. Now, he came and he preached Jesus, and he gave them the good news of the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. But he also said that he was so desirous of them, he gave them his very self. This is the beauty and the risk of true gospel ministry, friends. It's extremely relational. It is not just hear this and then disconnect. No, there is a connection deep within human beings if this is true, and that always creates vulnerability because you could get hurt. Gospel ministry means getting up and close and personal in the highs and the lows of everyday human life with others. It's meant to be a faithful presence among the flock of God and the body of Christ. It means embracing that those we are ministering to are people to love, not projects to fix. And this is so important because nothing is more Christ-like than this posture, is it? I mean, in Matthew 9, the crowds are gathered. Jesus is beginning to preach and teach. And it says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. That word compassion is our favorite Greek word here at the King's Church, and it's been a minute since we've said it. It's splognon. That's an awesome word. Let's all say it together. Ready? Splognon. That literally is meant to be the sounds of your intestines. How gross is that? But here's what it means. Jesus looked out, and his insides hurt for the people that he was seeing. He had compassion on them. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. 
the gospel minister looks out on his flock that ultimately belongs to God, and he has splagnon, compassion, because they're sheep without a shepherd. That's why the biblical qualification of pastors and elders is gentleness. That's why one of the fruits of the Spirit is gentleness. What has to drive ministry is not ambition or fame or influence or platforms or being a life coach or a visionary or a catalytic leader, though there might not be anything wrong with that, but if they're not gentle, if they're not Christ-like, we're missing the mark. Peter says to his fellow elders, do not domineer over the flock, but live among them as examples. We need more pastors and gospel ministers as mothers who are loving out of an overflow. That's the first image there. The second, though, is this idea of ministry as not just an overflow of love, but a ministry as an act of self-giving. The picture Paul is giving here is not just of a mother, did you catch that? But of a nursing mother. I'm going to tread very lightly here, okay? But nursing a baby is hard work. I had no idea how hard it was until we had our first child, and then it turned out that that was like the hardest thing in the world to watch. I've seen my wife do this now for her third round. Nursing a child, think about it, is literally giving of your very self to love your child and meet their needs. A nursing mother has to pattern her life, her time, her calendar, and her priorities around the life of her child. She has to sacrifice to meet these needs. It is costly every three hours comes around. There is something about true gospel ministry that will be the same. It will keep you up at night. There is an anxiety about your children. It's often quite uncomfortable. Sometimes your child is crying and you have no idea what to do to help them besides pray. It's actually the perfect picture of gospel ministry, isn't it? And this all means, in that image, that a mother can't give her child what she does not have herself. And gospel ministers must remember this as well. We cannot give to others what we do not have first, which means that we must pay close attention to our souls, our life, and our doctrine. Paul says, I was gentle among you like a nursing mother. I was affectionately desirous of you. We need more gospel ministers that look like that, don't we? But then in Paul's beautiful versatility, he moves from the image of a mother, did you catch it, to a father. Look at verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. See, in the ancient world, a father had the spiritual and just responsibility in general of training their children to follow in their footsteps. So you can think of it even vocationally. Today, most children grow up and they want to be something different than their parents, right? In fact, it's a little bit rare that a child follows in the footsteps of their parents now, but this is a different era. Back then, if your father was a farmer, guess what? You were a farmer. If your father was a fisherman or a silversmith or a carpenter, that's what you were destined to be. And the father had the responsibility to train up his child in this work because their inheritance was wrapped up in it and their family name and reputation would continue based on their training. And Paul comes in and he says, I came with the same posture as a spiritual father to you. 
I've come to you as a father in order that I might train you up so you might walk in a manner worthy of the calling of God. And he does this in both his words and his actions. In his words, he proclaimed the gospel of God week in and week out. He exhorted, encouraged, and charged his spiritual children. You and I know how powerful the words of a father can be. One harmful comment can stick with you for a lifetime from a father, can't it? But at the same time, one encouraging, exhorting, thankful, loving comment from a father can strengthen you for years and years. Paul knew the power of the words of a father, and he exhorted them in the gospel. He called them to something great. He used his words to point them to the hope and to the grace of a heavenly father who loves us in his son, Jesus. But he also does this in his actions. Paul, we know, was a tent maker. That's not just an actual phrase. He literally made tents. That's where it comes from. And he did that so that he could raise money so that he wouldn't be a burden to this church. He worked hard. Fathers work hard. And his conduct was holy, righteous, and blameless. I love this toward them, not just among them, but toward his children, holy, righteous, and blameless. Paul is setting an example to the church, urging them to follow him as he follows Christ. Brothers and sisters, and I don't say that as a filler, by the way, truly, brothers and sisters, what Paul is telling us here is there ought to be a familial relationship in the church between her leaders and her members, and between the members and one another. The church is held together not by the leadership practices of a Fortune 500 company, but by the bond of mothering and fathering and brothering and sistering, which is not even words, but that's what it is. We desperately need this today. When this manner of ministry is holistically pursued, to go back to our theme last week, it's going to look upside down to the world around us. No other leadership guru values those things. Sure, there might be some byproducts, but really, the gentle, meek mother, that's what we're going for? The father who's just kind of faithful and exhorts his kids? I don't know. It's going to look upside down to our world. I love how Scott Souls draws this comparison. He compares what the American leadership culture is like versus a gospel leadership culture. Just hear the stark contrast. He says, in America, credentials qualify a person to lead. In Jesus, the chief qualification is character. In America, what matters most are the results we produce. In Jesus, what matters most is the kind of people we are becoming. In America, success is measured by material accumulation, power, and the positions that we hold. In Jesus, success is measured by material generosity, humility, and the people whom we serve. In America, leaders crave recognition and credit. In Jesus, leaders think less of themselves and give credit to others. In America, leaders compare and compete so they will flourish. In Jesus, leaders sacrifice and serve so others will flourish. In America, the strong and the powerful rise to the top. In Jesus, the meek shall inherit the earth. Upside down to the world, brothers and sisters. Which means that we together, not just the leaders of the church, but we together as the body of Christ, we have to be more concerned with character than charisma. We have to care more about godliness than giftedness. We have to be more concerned with integrity than impressiveness. 
There might not be anything wrong with charisma and giftedness and impressiveness, but if those trump and become more important than someone's character and godliness, we're following the world and not our risen Savior. The manner of ministry, Paul came as a mother and as a father. That's what it ought to look like. And then lastly, thirdly, Paul's message of ministry, verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. The message of ministry is the message of the gospel as it is contained in this book. The message of ministry is right here. This is it. It is in this book. It is in the words of God. The temptation in every age and season of the church is to try to move on to the next relevant, exciting, catalytic thing. But our message is right here in this book because that's where the power is. That's why we are so doggedly committed to this. And that's why Paul was too. I mean, why not move on to something else? Why not update the things for our time and age? Why not make it a little less offensive? Why not try to move beyond it to connect with people? Well, verse 13 tells us why. It's one of the most profound verses in all of Scripture about itself. Paul says that the message of ministry is the Bible because of both its nature and its activity. The nature of the Bible is this. It is the very word of God communicated through the words of men as inspired by the Holy Spirit. Nothing else is going to give you that. Peter says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is why everything that we do must be centered around the Word of God. Every ministry activity ought to be informed and guided by it. That's why we read it. That's why we study it. That's why every single week you come here and somebody preaches it and we sing it. We ought to pray the word of God. We ought to discuss it together. We ought to apply it to our lives and our community. This has to be our focus, church. This is where the power for transformation comes as the Holy Spirit enlivens that word of God into our hearts and our minds. It shows us the beauty of the truth that it contains, but the temptation in every age and season is to give people what they want and not what they need. Gospel ministers have to give people what they need, not necessarily what they want. That's why I love when Paul is exhorting Timothy, he gives him a charge, and it's a serious charge in 2 Timothy 4. Listen to how ridiculously over the top this introduction is from Paul. This is how serious he wants Timothy to take it. He says, I charge you... Big enough deal. I mean, it's a spiritual father. Not just that. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who, don't forget, is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in kingdom. Okay, Paul, we get it. What are you charging Timothy? Preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why? For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Timothy cannot fulfill his ministry if he does not preach the word. It is the priority. 
That's the nature of the Bible. But then the activity of the Bible. Paul says that it is at work. How does that work? How do words on a page transfer down to us? How are they at work? Well, it's because, of course, they're not dead words. They are words that are living and active. They are words that, when enlivened by the Spirit of God, drew the hearts of the Thessalonians away from idols to serve the living and true God. They are words that the Spirit produced fruit that we read in chapter 1. They produced a work of faith, a labor of love, and a steadfastness of hope. This word is also the work that is producing in them a faithful perseverance and imitation of Christ in the midst of suffering, which is what he encourages them with in those last few verses in our section. This is not a dead word, it is a living and active word. So church, we have to ask the question, do we have this kind of regard and expectation for the word of God? We can talk a big game here. We can talk about how we want to be centered in our whole lives and ministry around the scriptures, but does it practically look that way? You see, we are called to receive and accept the word in the same way as the church in Thessalonica. Our commitment as pastors is to week in and week out feed you with the word of God. All that we do by God's grace will be informed and guided by it, but we urge you as pastors, as Charles Spurgeon once quipped, visit many good books, but live in the Bible. Let's be people who live in the Bible. That is the message of ministry. That is the power of the gospel. So church, let me remind you, Faithful gospel ministry is a stewardship of the word of God. It's a commitment to the people of God. Yes, that is the job description for pastors, but as the body of Christ, as the family of God, that has to permeate all that we do. That is God's design, and so the question we have to ask is, is that our design? And here's the beauty of it all. The thing that holds all of this together is not the qualifications of your leaders. It's not the giftedness of the pastors of the church. It's not even the gifts and incredible things that the body brings to the table. The thing that holds it all together is the grace of Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus looks at us, looks at his church, the body of Christ, and he says, yeah, it's broken, it's imperfect, it limps along, but I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Church, let's rest in that reality. And let's pursue its beautiful design. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reminder of your word in this passage. God, thank you that you have not left us in the dark as to how we ought to organize ourselves, what kind of expectations we ought to have of one another and our leaders. And thank you that you have been gracious, especially in our midst, Lord, to help in our early stage create a culture that feels a lot like this, Lord. I pray that you would fan into flame uh, the truth that this passage has, the Holy Spirit you continue to bring the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in our midst. I pray that we would not be lured and drawn away by something that the world tells us we ought to be pursuing, but that the Word of God, the message of ministry, would inform and guide all that we do. Lord, as we want to be faithful to your word and your kindness, draw us to see the ways that we are moving towards something else and in repentance and faith when we turn back to you. Jesus, we thank you for your grace that sustains us and we thank you for the sure promise that you will build your church. Help us to feel the freedom and the weight of that. And Jesus, may you continue to be magnified in and through our midst, we pray in his name. Amen.